Balance your trading strategy by adding futures. CME Group helps you manage risk and capture opportunities in all market environments. Capitalize on around-the-clock access to highly liquid global futures and options market across all major asset classes. Just visit your online broker and get started. Plug into valuable educational materials and trading tools and see what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash on the tape. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry. iConnections membership only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers, their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively. iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt iConnections in New York, taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about iConnections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io. Hit your money goals without switching platforms. Download SoFi's all-in-one super app for industry-leading APY. Great loan rates and stock trading. SoFi, get your money right. Banking products and loans offered by SoFi Bank, NANMLS 696891. Brokerage and active investing products offered through SoFi Securities, LLC, member FINRA, SIPC. Welcome to On the Tape, the Monday edition. I'm Dan Nathan. I'm joined by Guy Adami and EY from SoFi. That would be Liz Young. She's the head market strategist over there at SoFi. Gents and lady, this morning, usually we like to have a little fun on a Monday morning, and it's just one of those days, right? Guy, you've been saying this for a long time. You've been doing fast money on CNBC for almost 17 years. I've been doing it for 13, 14 years, and every once in a while, we have to think about markets through a, a slightly different lens, ones that I don't think any of us are really charged with doing, and sometimes it feels almost inappropriate when you think about this war that's going on in Israel and the loss of life and probably what's likely to happen for weeks, if not months to come on a humanitarian level. So again, our hearts go out to everybody involved in that situation, but we got to talk about what we're here to talk about a little bit. And, and when you think about just some of the impact that we've seen on commodities, on growth uh, globally, it was massively impacted by the, the Russian invasion of Ukraine in the beginning of, of 2022. So we're a little steeped in, in that. So we're going to get to all that. We're going to get to some earnings this week. We're going to get to some economic data. Also, just a little housekeeping. Guy and I had a great conversation last week with Chris Miller. He is the author of a book called Chip Wars. And this is a really interesting one. This was first guy, I think Mike Mobison, your good friend. I think he referenced this book to us, recommended it to us and to our listeners late last year. And it's a book about the history of the semiconductor industry going back to the 40s and really talking about just the kind of race that we were in to develop the semiconductor for a whole host of reasons. Obviously, many were from a military standpoint before all the consumer applications were known. And and the race that we had with Russia and then obviously with China and everything that's going on now. This is a a great book. I'm actually almost done with it. So I recommend it to people. And if you want a copy of the book, the first 100 listeners who go to the podcast store, you find OK Computer. It's OK, A-Y, 
Computer podcast. Leave a review for that. We're going to put the full interview on that feed. That is a fine podcast that I host with many good tech folks there. Leave a review, send it to contact at riskreversal.com and you will get a free copy of Chris Miller's Chip War. Okay, guy, let's talk about this a little bit. And Liz, listen, there's lots of implications. Just first and foremost, I'll just say that the potential for wavering support for Ukraine and obviously what President Biden said over the weekend and our unwavering support for Israel and what that means from just an aid standpoint, might it be diverted, some of which to Israel to deal with this? Obviously, our administration was involved in this. They're trying to reset normalization of a contact between Saudi Arabia and Israel. What does that mean? What does it mean? The Wall Street Journal over the weekend was reporting that Iran was, was possibly helping to coordinate this Hamas attack. What does it mean with Iran? What does it mean, Guy, for the Chinese and, and embolden them possibly with the situation with Taiwan that we've been talking about? So all of a sudden, there's lots of geopolitical hotspots. Talk to us a little bit about this because we have the futures down as we're talking right now, maybe 70 basis points. We have crude up 3%. We have the dollar up a half a percent. We have gold up 1%. So through the lens that we're charged at looking through, this, a lot going on, Guy. No, that's exactly right. And through our lens, there is a lot going on. And you actually touched on all the salient points. What does it embolden Russia in terms of what's going on with Ukraine, thinking that somehow some of the funds that would have gone to Ukraine are going to be diverted? I have have no idea, but obviously that's part of the calculus. And does it embolden the Chinese to potentially do something? Understanding that now, you know, the world is seemingly has wars, for lack of a better word, I think that's the correct word, on multiple fronts. What does it mean to the commodity world? And through our lens, more importantly, what does it mean for the bond market? Is this going to be the catalyst that creates this flight to quality that we've been talking about in terms of the bond market, making yields go lower, and then potentially the impact on the dollar? Or is this just going to be a an event that the bond market, for whatever reason, chooses to ignore and maybe ignore it focuses on more the perceived important things like the inflation data that's coming out this week? That's why this week is fascinating on so many levels. You've seen the bounce in crude oil. That makes sense. Will you see a follow through? I think the real play to look at is gold. And then subsequently, when the bond market reopens, what happens to rates? Yeah, Liz, to that point. So the bond market is closed today for Indigenous Peoples Day. So we're not, we don't see what the 10 year or, or any of the treasuries are doing. The TLT is up about 1%. That would assume that bonds are down. So to Guy's point about a flight to quality, so buying US treasuries and pushing yields lower. H- how are you thinking about this? Again, we have have to go through this. All of us were sitting there and watching this unfold over the course of the weekend, and it's just heartbreaking from a humanitarian level. But then you're going to get back to the thing that we're here to do is try to help people navigate these sorts of situations. What were some of the most important kind of takeaways that you had as you're thinking about being a market strategist? Where, where do you want to focus here? First of all, a sad weekend, sad start to the week. And yes, my heart goes out to everybody over there and, and everybody that's dealing with this. What I'll say about events like this, first of all, People like us talk about geopolitical risks all the time. We talk about the possibility of black swan events. The definition of a black swan event is the thing we don't see coming, right? We've been talking about on this podcast and on other programs for a while now that China is the big possibility black swan, right? But that's that doesn't really qualify because we've been talking about it. So here we are in a situation where we have an event that nobody saw coming. And I'll tell you this, things like this are never just what they seem at first blush, So you sit there and you think about over the weekend, which is what I was doing Saturday afternoon, Saturday night, thinking, okay, what are the logical first reactions in the market? The logical first reaction is oil. We're having that right now where you've got 
perhaps more supply constraint than we've already had. Not a great environment for that to be happening in because we've already seen such volatility and such a rise in oil prices, which, as we know, puts more strain on the economy, more strain on consumers, and just more question marks about inflation. So we're seeing the tremors in the oil market right now. But even if you think about what happened when Russia invaded Ukraine, we all knew that there would be backlash from the oil trade and and all of the things that went on between Russia and Europe. What we didn't think about, at least personally, what I didn't think about in those first few days was how much wheat we got from Ukraine, right? And the way it was going to affect other commodity prices. I think we should expect this week and next week there to be knock-on effects, fallout that we didn't see coming, that we didn't think about at first. And then the bigger risk, in my opinion, geopolitically and to markets, is that how many other countries, how many other regions get involved in this? Does it spread? Does it stay contained? And then that becomes a much bigger question mark at a time when we're all worried about global recession, we're worried about inflation being an issue. And now you've got costs that perhaps increase in many different regions for defense, for aid, not helping the inflation start yeah, at all. So, and, and, and that's a great point, Guy, when Liz talks about it. From a fiscal standpoint, we, we would not have had all of this inflation, right, if we hadn't seen some of the fiscal response to the pandemic. And when, if you think about some of that being diverted towards just the making of ammunition or the making of a whole host of other uses for war, it, it does speak to an environment where maybe there's less support. But by that token, with commodities bid up like this, if we were to see sustained sort of war in the Middle East and other countries were drawn into it, that's obviously inflationary at a time when we're really trying very quickly. And that's the beauty of this book, Chip War, really talking about chips as a source of national security, right? So you have this move away from China, diversifying away from some potential conflict with Taiwan. It's all really inflationary at a time without that fiscal support. It could be a low growth environment. And then we find ourselves, it's crazy to think about. We find ourselves in a period not too different guy than the 70s, where we first had a spell of stagflation, which took decades, I think, to get past. Things move faster now, but you're exactly right. And we've talked about the different parallels between what's going on now and the different times throughout our history. And, and you're right to mention the inflationary pressures this creates, which you wonder, does it almost render the numbers we're going to get this week somewhat moot in the sort of understanding that all that's in the rearview mirror. And now there are a new set of circumstances that we start to have to deal with. And how does this impact the Fed? And there's so many fascinating things in terms of our world to take a look at. You're right to point out commodities. Again, I think you know where I stand on the commodity front. This does nothing to help or assuage any of the concerns on the sort of supply side of things. And we'll see how it plays out. The market, I don't know, the US equity market under pressure. But historically, things like this actually sometimes counterintuitively provide a bit of a catalyst. So I don't know what to make of it in terms of the markets. Certain things make sense. The gold move makes sense. If you see quasi-strength in the dollar, I guess that would make sense. We'll see in the bond market, but the equity market's going to tell the tale. And we'll talk about some of the indicators there. You know how I feel about the equity market. I'm bolstered by the fact that we sort of held that 4,200 level like a champ and then obviously bounced on Friday. But we'll see if that was short-term gain for longer-term pain. Yeah, and your point about wars and, and what they mean for economies, what they mean for markets, if you think about March of 2003, when we moved into Iraq, that was basically the bottom of a three-year bear market, right? The market was down in 00, 01, 02. We were actually headed for almost new lows in early 03. And it literally, the bear market ended on like a dime. Now, no one knew at the time that was the case here, but I think it was obviously a very different situation. If you think about the period that we're in right now, we actually haven't even had a 
recession yet. Like that's a big part of it. And I just think it was interesting last week, there are a couple prominent strategists other than you out there, EY. There are calling others? for Yeah, there are others, believe it or not. There was Michael Hartnett of Bank of America said that he is not convinced the mayor market has unfinished business. Marco Kalanovic over at JP Morgan also said we could see the potential for a 20% plunge guy. He was on CNBC's Fast Money with you. The guy's point, when we think about that test of 4,200 in the S&P 500, Liz, it really did stop exactly where it was supposed to do. We know that 200-day moving average is right in around there. That was the breakout level from June or so. What do you think? Is this likely to put more recessionary fears back on the table, especially if we get higher readings in PPI and CPI this week? First of all, as a, a strategist, uh, among others who are very well respected, when somebody like Marco Kalanovic says something that dramatic, you got to listen up. And he knows how much power he carries when he comes out and says something like that so publicly. Uh, I think he really means it. And, and I think it's a genuine concern of his. The drawdown that we've seen since the end of July has been pretty chill, frankly. It's been pretty orderly. It hasn't been the result of some big catalyst, some huge event that occurred and sends people in extremes. It wasn't this precipitous decline, everybody rushing for the exit but at the same rates. time. It was the rate move, don't you think? It I was. Mean, the, yeah, yeah, which yeah. is rational. Yeah. The, the, in my opinion, the market had been irrational about rates for a while. You got stocks up, rates up. That didn't make much sense. So as rates rose and the speed with which they rose, valuations did need to come down, but that valuation give back was pretty orderly. So you didn't see the market go to extremes and you didn't see this sort of building, selling, beget selling sort of behavior. And I think that's part of why it bounced off 4,200. There wasn't this extreme level of fear. Yes, we had a bunch of the bulls switch over to be bearish, right? And the sentiment in the market changed Certainly momentum changed. You saw some of those near-term indicators change momentum. But there wasn't a catalyst that said, everybody run, rush, get out. This is a crisis. So I, I can't say that I'm super surprised that it, it bounced orderly, off of 4,200. It was orderly. Right. It did what it needed. So then, the technicals uh, held up. Yeah. Right. And I'm not saying they're going to stay holding up. There probably will be some sort of catalyst. Maybe this is part of it. Or maybe it's earnings, maybe it's disappointing earnings season, maybe there's something, maybe there's a corporate announcement. I know we've been talking about that for a while. I think there needs to be more of a catalyst if we want to see the technicals break down and for things to really bust through those support levels. Because at this point, the buyers still have a reason to buy. So Guy, Charlie Bolello had some data in his weekly, we'll put it in the show notes here, only 8% of stocks in the S&P 500 closed above its 50-day moving average last Tuesday, October 3rd, which was the most extreme oversold level since October of 2022. And he put some data in there, what happens when stocks are extremely oversold. They tend to bounce with above average forward returns, one month up 3.5%, three months up nearly 4%, six months up 8.4%. And then on the flip side, Guy, we were talking about expectations for Fed rate hikes at the November 1st meeting, okay? So I think about a week and a half ago, that might have been about 30% looking at the CME Fed Watch tool. They've been cut in half since then. So I think a lot of that work has been done in the last couple of days. Put those two things together. Oversold readings and equities because of that precipitous rise in rates over the last, call it, month or so. And now expectations for a rate hike getting cut in half to less than, let's call it, 20% because what? Because, I don't know, equities did their job a little bit? I don't know, guy. I rarely, if ever, hear people talk about overbought conditions. I'm sure it comes up from time to time, but you don't really hear it all that often because obviously it's in everybody's best interest for stocks to go higher. So if, in fact, statistically that were the case, people, are, it's not their want to point it out. But obviously, if things are overbought, 
things can be oversold as well. I understand the data that he brings forth and the number of stocks closing below and all those different things. And we have had a decent move to the downside, but it's not like we've seen this dramatic move. It certainly hasn't been a panic move. So I don't really understand how you can put this oversold conditions. Now I'll say this as well. The market could go sideways to slightly higher for a course of time and work off uh, those oversold conditions rather quickly. We've seen that before as well. There are many reasons to be bullish or bearish, and this could be a potential catalyst, but this in a vacuum, Dan, doesn't do a whole lot for me. And that's just my opinion, all respect to his work, but I think you understand what I'm saying. It's not like we've seen some cascade lower over the course of a couple of days. It's a pretty orderly move since effectively late July, early August. Yeah. And so this week, I think earnings get kicked off. It's going to tell us a lot when you think about sentiment and you think about just where the market has been in 2023 relative to the fact that earnings have actually been declining. They haven't gotten as low as many folks thought at late last year where S&P earnings were going to be, Liz. But this is from our main man, Butters, over there at FactSet. He is a senior earnings insight analyst. S&P 500 expected to see the fourth straight quarter of earnings decline here. So when you think about that, and I think that we have this expected decline for Q3 of 0.3%. This would be the four straight quarter over quarter, year over year earnings decline for the index. We've had the earnings recession. We haven't had the economic recession. And if you look at expectations for 2024 earnings expected to be up double digits, is that if we have higher for longer rates, we have a dollar, let's just say that even just firms, the US dollar index in and around this kind of 105, 106 sort of level, we have higher commodity of the prices, are we likely, and people are going to really start to get focused on 2025 earnings, are we likely to see 12% or more raise next year after we've had four consecutive declines this year? I think that would be very aspirational to see double-digit earnings growth. I think we should be happy with 5% earnings growth in an environment where we've got capital constraints, we've got figuring out whether or not companies can make it through this environment, we've got margins compressing, we've got a consumer slowing down. I would be happy with low single digits, mid single digits. I think 12% is is highly aspirational. One of the things I want to go back to, too, that this oversold thing, this is one of those periods, and I think earnings fall into this category, too. You can find the data to support whatever your take is. And whatever somebody's calling oversold on one side is going to be different on the other, right? One of the measures that you use a lot is RSI, the Relative Strength Index. That touched 30, which would be oversold on the S&P, but it's back up to 43 now. So never really got below 30, never really got to a condition where we would call it oversold from a strength perspective. And to Guy's point, and to the one that I talked about earlier, it was a pretty orderly decline. You don't usually find yourself in a slow, boring, oversold condition. You find yourself in a surprising oversold condition after a big shock where things fall very quickly. So I don't think that we got to oversold levels. We never even got to correction territory. So I don't think we got oversold. Earnings could be something that takes us to a more decidedly oversold condition. If we start to get news from companies, and this could be the quarter that we start to get it, if we start to get news from companies that 2024 is not going to be as good as we thought, if we start to get news that they need to cut costs, I think I've mentioned this on one of these programs before. I asked somebody who I respect immensely what their expectation was for earnings in 2024. They responded something along the lines of margins are going to keep expanding. And I said, how can that be? The math of that would suggest that you must be expecting companies to cut costs. And they said, yes, I do expect them to cut costs and in the form of labor. So it wasn't it was a yes, margins will expand. But because of 
cost cutting because of things that we are going to probably start hearing about. Which is crazy because of that hot data that we saw on the jobs front on Friday. So that's crazy. All right, let's segue to earnings because individual earnings, that is, because Tuesday before the open, we have uh, Pepsi. And this is a stock guy that was making new all-time highs, okay, early this year, I think late last year, early this year. Now trades at a market multiple after a 20% plunge from those recent highs, which is pretty astounding. For the first time, Trading in a market multiple, to me, I, I just find this really fascinating guy. We haven't had earnings cuts in this company yet, but is it a rates thing? We've talked about consumer staples and the whole group has absolutely gotten killed. And I just wonder, when we think about who are reporting this week, we have a couple airlines, we have some staples, and we have banks. All three of these groups have acted horribly. And when you talk about sentiment, you talk about into earnings events, it couldn't be worse for these groups right now. So if the news is not great, but not worse than expected or not worse than, let's say, a 20% plunge that we've seen in the jets, which is the airlines. We've seen banks 20% from their highs. Now we're seeing staples. That's crash territory. That's not correction territory, guy. No, it's interesting. So this stock, to your point, Dan, I didn't trade 200, but it got damn close in the spring. I think in May, it got up to 196 and change. And here we are either side of 160 levels that we last saw, oddly enough, this time last year. So it's not like we haven't been here before. So here we are. Let's try to figure out why that's happening. Part of the reason, I think, is because Pepsi can no longer really pass their costs onto their consumer. You know, we've talked about that for a while. That organic growth that the Pepsis and the Cokes, Kellogg's of the world talk about is really code for we're just passing on our costs to the consumer. That's no longer the case one. There's also this sort of phenomenon going around, and a lot of people are talking about it, as the United States specifically becomes more health conscious in the form of a merit of different things. It's obviously hurting names like Pepsi and Coke. That's a smaller part of it, but it's out there as well. The really question is, at what point does this thing become attractive on valuation? You talked about it trading at a market multiple, but broader, what does it really mean? What are we seeing when you have basically Teflon companies, staple companies, lower left to upper right for years on years, have a move of this magnitude in a short period of time. I think that's speaking to something in terms of A, the consumer, but B, maybe the market as well. All right, but here's one for you, Guy, really quickly, because for years, people have talked about Apple and it's expanding multiple, right, over the last five years. And you've made this point, when it was a growth stock, it traded like a value stock. Now that it's got mid-single digits earnings and sales growth and flat margins, it trades like a consumer staple and trades at 27, 28 times. So if Pepsi and Coke can come in 20% and go from a high 20s multiple to a, a market multiple in and around 20 or so, couldn't Apple do the same thing, guy? Absolutely. And I'm sure Elizabeth has thoughts on this as well. But Carter talks about this. I don't know if he coined the phrase, but the generals are the last to go typically in the market. And obviously Apple is one of those generals. And it's been this place, this flight to quality or flight to perceived quality in the form of Apple. I think to a certain extent, the market seems to think that higher rates don't really affect Apple as much given their balance sheet. But again, they're making things that people want to buy. Let's not kid ourselves here. You know, you can talk about the innovation and all those things, but it comes down to the simple fact that they need the consumer to buy things, to buy their products. And if that is slowing, which is manifesting itself, by the way, over the last three quarters, at a certain point, I think the market starts to take that into consideration. There's a phrase that's used in baseball, a lot of sports. It's called utility player, right? And it's used for the person that can play a bunch of different positions and be pretty good at a bunch of different positions, which is hard in baseball. Usually if you're a catcher, you're not good at other things, so on, so on and so forth. These stocks, Apple as an example, some of these really big mega cap tech stocks, many investors have regarded as the utility player of the market in the sense of, 
When things are good, we call them high growth stocks and they should be doing well. When things are bad, we call them defensive stocks and they should be doing well. When things are going sideways, they should do okay because where else are you going to put your money? When rates are rising, they should do fine. When rates are falling, they should be fine. That is not typically how the market works. There are not a lot of things out there that are going to work in every single environment. And I'm not saying that there needs to be a reckoning that comes for these mega cap tech stocks or some of these big behemoths that we've relied on in every environment. But at some point, if fear hits the market, defensives, in my opinion, regular defensives, straightforward stuff, the boring stuff, the stuff that everybody believes is dead, I think will work again. And that's it's not ever that different, right? Things do change. The weightings in the market change. But it's not ever completely different. It is interesting. Guy alluded to this, like the Ozempic effect, these GLP-1s, these weight loss drugs. That is a little wrinkle that we're not going to be able to quantify for salty and sweet snacks and sugary water. And that's what I think. It's interesting. That, I think, added a little bit of fuel to the fire. Another group, Guy, and and let's just, I guess we'll just focus on banks here. On Friday before the opening, we're going to have JP Morgan. We're going to have Citibank, Wells Fargo, PNC, JP Morgan and City are likely to have very different results, but Jamie Dimon has been pretty negative over the last few weeks, right? His stock has shown really good relative to performance to Bank America and to Citigroup. But when I look at this BKX and I look at the fact that about a year and change ago, early 2022 was making new all-time highs. You look at the lows that were made during the regional banking crisis. You look at the bounce and how much is given back. I am hard pressed in this environment, Guy, when we know that some of these big money center banks have very similar held to maturity, mark to market issues with their treasury holdings that we are not going to see some significant losses as there is greater demand for deposits and keeping those deposits where they are. So you tell me, whatever sentiment is into earnings, into bank earnings, maybe you get a pop like we did after Q2 earnings, but many of these banks have made new lows and and really underperformed the S&P. So I'm curious, thoughts on the banks here, because I'm not telling you I think they're a good press into earnings, but if they bounce hard after, they're probably a good sale at that point, because I am hard pressed to see that the BKX does not go in round trip to those 2020 lows in March. Which I think, if I'm not mistaken, was around 72 and change back in, I want to say May, but whatever, all those things cascade lower on the back of Silicon Valley. BKX now trading 75 and a half. By the way, it rallied all the way up to, I think, 89 or maybe even 90 in the middle of July. Just just keep that in context. Bank of America, as we're sitting here making multi-year lows, I happen to agree with you. I don't know if they're a press here. I don't even know if you necessarily trade them, but you have to watch them in terms of the context it gives you for what's going on. In the absence of bad news, a lot of these small and regional banks rallied after Silicon Valley Bank. That made sense. Because on valuations, a lot of those stocks got throttled. They've all started to come back since, as I mentioned, late July, and in a very methodical way to the downside. I think that is telling a story. And you say what you want. JP Morgan, I think they've navigated this rate move extraordinarily well. Kudos to them. But you mentioned Jamie Dimon being negative for quite some time now. And I think I want, I just, you know, I I hate picking on Bank of America, but I have to here because it's a relatively large bank trading particularly poorly for quite some time now. There's something clearly going on there. And if the banks are telling a story, the banks are the lifeblood of our economy, regardless of what you may think. They might have the same value in terms of their percentage of the S&P 500, but in terms of what they mean for the U.S. economy and the consumer, they mean a great deal. 
You got to respect a guy like Jamie Dimon who comes out and, and almost purposely doesn't talk his book. He leads one of the biggest banks in the world and has been negative on the economy. Marco Kalanovic, obviously from J.P. Morgan as well. You have to respect the authenticity of those takes. And obviously, both of them have a vested interest in the financial sector doing well. But the reality is that they don't see good prospects for the economy coming up. And the financials, it's a risk we know. So this is something that as an investor, sometimes it can be a contrarian signal. If things get low enough, they get sold and, and nobody wants it. You want somebody else's trash is your treasure. What You pick the phrase. But financials at this point, the big banks included, I think it's played out that they have benefited from regional banks. They've benefited from the stress that's happened in regionals. We know what the stress is in regionals. We know what the possible catalyst and the issue could be for them. And we also know about commercial real estate that still hasn't really blown up. But we know that there are a lot of embedded risks there. Financials are the risk, you know, and as an investor, it's something that as we try to figure out how we're getting from late cycle back to early cycle, it's not a place that I would be piling a bunch of money in and seeing this as a contrarian signal. I think that this is probably more of a coincident signal for the economy and everybody worried about some sort of credit stress or event coming up. Yeah, which has been pushed out. It seems to be, listen, Guy had this really good point last week. Carter on Market Call was I think he was charting the Russell microcaps and just looking at the absolute and the relative performance, it's just really bad. And when you think about who those companies are and what percentage small, medium businesses make of, of employment, despite what we saw on Friday out of that September jobs report and to some of the things that you were just saying about cost cutting, it really feels the unemployment rate is going to start to tick up in, in a way that will not be conducive. At least if companies can't pass through those inflationary pressures, at some point, you're going to see a hit to margins. And that should be the thing that maybe takes the stock market down a little bit. And maybe that's that's what's going on in Staples right now. Okay, again, so people, we like to usually have a little fun on a Monday morning, and it just doesn't feel a whole heck of a lot of fun out there right now. So our hearts go out to everybody who's being affected by the situation over there. We hope there's a speedy result, but we're going to keep doing what we do and, and figure out uh, ways to think about markets, think about the economy, think about how you're investing in and around a really difficult situation, but also stick around for this conversation. Guy and I had a great talk with Chris Miller. He's the Associate Professor of International History at the Fletcher school at Tufts University. He's the author of Chip War, the fight for the world's most critical technology. And you know the drill. Go to OK Computer, follow it in the podcast store, leave a review, take a screenshot, send it to Amanda at contact.riskversal.com, and you are going to get a copy of Chris Miller's fine book. So stick around for that conversation. Thanks, Liz. Thanks, Guy, for being with us here this Monday morning. With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro-contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com micros. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry. iConnections' membership-only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers, their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt iConnections in New York, taking place on May 20th through the 21st 
at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about iConnections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io. SoFi, the all-in-one super app for banking, borrowing, and investing. Earn industry-leading APY, get great loan rates, and trade stocks. SoFi, get your money right. Banking products and loans offered by SoFi Bank N.A., NMLS 696891. Brokerage and active investing products offered through SoFi Securities, LLC, member FINRA SIPC. Welcome back to On the Tape. Guy and I are joined by Chris Miller. Chris is the Associate Professor of International History at the Fletcher School at Tufts University. He is also the author of a book that's been recommended to Guy, Danny, and myself on many occasions, which I am knee-deep in. It's called Chip Wars, the fight for the world's most critical technology. Chris, welcome to the pod. Thank you for having me. Guy, your good friend, Mike Mobison, I think it was late last year, told us we have to read this book. He recommended it to our listeners. And I got to tell you, it reads a lot, Chris. I don't know if you read Shoe Dog, which was the the, the book about the creation of Nike and, and Phil Knight, because you take this really interesting historical perspective to the semiconductor industry. You take us all the way back during the 40s and, and you talk, it gets very technical, but I understand you are not a technologist. You are a historian and you've written books on the Russian economy over many different periods, and you have a book on Putinomics and and the Putin economy. What led you as an academic, as a historian, to research this topic and write a book that actually reads, and and if you read many of the reviews, and I'm I'm reading this book, and it is a page turner, it really does feel like it has the potential to be a movie at some point, to be very frank with you. The historical aspects are fascinating. The geopolitical aspects are fascinating, and it's just really topical. This book came out, I think, right after the CHIPS Act was signed and and right before the advanced chip bans were put in place here. So talk to us a little bit about what drew you to this topic and why you think it's so relevant right here and right now. As you say, I'm an economic historian by training, and I first decided to write a book about semiconductors when I came to realize that you really can't understand the way the global economy works without them. First, I as part of the the study of where chips uh, emerge, I learned that the first chips were used in U.S. missile systems during the Cold War. And so there was a a geopolitical aspect to the chip industry, but it's not just about uh, geopolitics, it's also about globalization because today uh, chips are one of the most widely traded goods and China spends as much money each year importing semiconductors as spends importing oil. So I realized that actually all of the key trends in the world today, the balance of military power, the structure of the world economy, it all depends on semiconductors, and yet we basically never think about them because we hardly ever see them. They're buried deep inside of our electronic devices. How dependent are we in the United States on other countries? Now, I know the answer is quite, but there's clearly a push to get facilities built here in the United States. Intel's doing it. The problem, of course, is it's billions of dollars, and typically it takes anywhere from five to 10 years to build these places. So in the interim, this is a huge geopolitical homeland security risk to the United States. That's right. And the challenge is that today, the world's most advanced chip maker is a company called TSMC, the Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company, which today has almost all of its production, including all of its most advanced production in Taiwan, 90% 
10% of the world's most advanced processors, the type of chip in your smartphone, in your computer, in the data centers that are training AI systems, they're all made in Taiwan. And so that means that the US and really the whole world is dependent on this one company continuing to produce the most advanced chips. So it's interesting, and I've said this, and feel free to disagree, but you know, as much as Russia, Ukraine was about the reunification of the Soviet Union and all those things, it has much to do with that as it is controlling the global commodity markets. Dependence on Taiwan, to your point, I mean, it seems a foregone conclusion that obviously China has, I don't know, thoughts of somehow the reunification of Taiwan with China, which does not augur particularly well. And I don't think it's if, I think it's more of when. Am I onto something there? I think you're, you're certainly right that if you talk to U.S. policymakers, Pentagon officials, they're more worried than at any point in half a century that China might move on Taiwan. And they've gotten more worried over the past decade, just as the whole world has gotten progressively more dependent on ships made in Taiwan. That's the dilemma. Chris, you use the term in the book, the Taiwanization. A lot of folks want to focus on globalization or the diversification now of supply chains. Can you give us a little context, historically maybe, of the choke point that we have? You just talked about how all the advanced chips, talked a little bit about the market share that Taiwan Semi has. And really, for their existence right now, we're seeing this, and maybe it's a lot of lip service right now because they don't want to lose customers and the like here. They have to talk about diversifying to other places that are maybe less geopolitical hotspots as their homeland. Give us some context about when you talk about what percentage of grain was grown in, in Ukraine and in Russia and what that war meant for the disruption of that supply chain or natural gas flows to Europe. Like, How much more important is this to the global economy than what we just experienced, let's say, over the last two years and, and the pressure points because of that geopolitical situation? The analogy I like to draw is with OPEC and oil. Saudi Arabia produces 10 or 15% of the world's oil. Taiwan produces 90% of the world's most advanced processor chips. And I think TSMC is more important than a commodity producer like Saudi Arabia because chips aren't commodities. The semiconductors that TSMC produces often can't be produced by anyone else on the planet. And TSMC has around 50% of the world's market share in the production of chips for other companies. And so just to put what TSMC does in a bit of historical context, before this company was founded, almost all companies designed and manufactured chips in-house. But TSMC was created with a different business model. They wanted to be sort of like what Gutenberg was for books. They wanted to do that in semiconductors. They don't design any chips. They just produce them from other companies for Apple, for NVIDIA, for AMD. So all of the biggest companies in Silicon Valley are all hugely dependent, in some cases, uniquely dependent on TSMC to produce the chips that they rely on. So talk to us a bit about, let's say, an Apple, a Qualcomm, an AMD. These are all their biggest customers in a way. And so when we think about how supply chains in and around U.S. manufacturers of consumer electronics for decades now, they've just been oriented at least as far as chips in Taiwan, and you talk about the market share there, but then you talk about like iPhone cities that are made in, in, in China, and there's this steady flow of components, and there's a reason why these supply chains have been oriented around there, the cheap labor and, and, and the like here. How might it work if, let's just say, there's some sort of economic embargo of Taiwan, right? And there's a some sort of disconnect or disruption of the supply of chips, let's say, to manufacturing capabilities within China. What is that look like in your opinion? You did a lot of reporting. Obviously, you did a lot of research on, on, on this. Is this the sort of thing that would make the pandemic supply chain disruptions or the Ukrainian invasion disruption? Is it going to make it look like child's play? Because when you think about it, you detail just 
all of the just the devices. Each new car that rolls off an assembly line has thousand semiconductors in it. Or are we likely on the precipice of a major economic event if there is some, some sort of geopolitical dust up between China and Taiwan in the near future? I think the pandemic era uh, supply chain issues are a, a good frame for looking at just how catastrophic it would be. We, we all heard about chip shortages during the pandemic. Most people don't realize that global production of chips increased every year of the pandemic. We produced more chips in 2020 than in 2019, even more chips in 2021. We just didn't produce enough to deal with the surge in demand as everyone bought new PCs to prepare to work from home. And nevertheless, that caused hundreds of billions of dollars in disruption of manufacturing. The car industry alone is estimated to have lost almost half a trillion dollars in sales they couldn't complete because they couldn't get chips they needed for their cars. And so if you weren't able to access chips from Taiwan over a period of months, the entire manufacturing industry would grind to a halt, at least in the short run. It's not just that you wouldn't be able to buy a smartphone anywhere in the world, although you wouldn't be able to buy a smartphone anywhere in the world. It's also dishwashers and coffee makers and microwaves and cars and airplanes and manufacturing equipment. They all have dozens, hundreds, even thousands of chips inside, and a huge share of these chips are made in Taiwan. It's interesting. President Xi of China, they've banned, obviously, some American companies from being there successfully. And you point out in your book, what they were not able to do is, or maybe what he didn't see or anticipate was cornering, for lack of a better term, the chip market. And I think there's a struggle there. Again, it's the new oil, as you mentioned. If you can control the chip market, you effectively can control the global economy. So ex-Taiwan, what are China's interests or what are they doing in mainland China to sort of combat that? Well, the, the challenge China faces is that it's actually a small player in the chip industry. By revenue share, China produces less than 10% of the world's chips. The US, Taiwan, Japan, Korea are all bigger players. And of the chips that China produces, most of them aren't very advanced. And when China produces chips, they do so using machines, software, chemicals that are imported from abroad, from the US, from Japan, from the Netherlands, from Korea. So China is hugely reliant in this sphere. And that's why for almost the last decade, since 2014, under President Xi, China has been pouring tens of billions of dollars a year into trying to develop more self-sufficient capability, sort of like one chips act per year over the last decade. And they've made some progress, but they're still meaningfully behind. And if you compare China's leading capabilities to what TSMC can do in Taiwan, China's been about a half decade behind for the last decade. Every year, China improves a little bit, but every year TSMC improves a little bit too, and the gap remains more or less the same. So you're you're a historian, you're an economic historian, and if you think about the majority of wars over history have been either started for religious reasons or economic reasons. If you think about what you just said and is behind the eight ball as China is in terms of chips, and then layer upon that a youth unemployment rate or teen unemployment rate anywhere from 25 to 40%, depending on who you believe, in one, almost in one fell swoop. And I'm not praying for this, but I'm just, I'm trying to be a, st a student of history as well. They could sort of assuage or deal with both of those problems with an invasion of Taiwan. Am, am I reading too much into that? Or is that sort of how it plays itself out? I think the challenge China faces is that the moment fighting starts, 
the supply chains that supply the chemicals, supply the spare parts, supply the software to TSMC shut down. Right. I'm going to stop you for a second. I apologize. A hundred percent. And on the back of that, and we've seen this now, historically, they've done it more so over the last few years. The stockpiling of just about everything that's being taken place is in anticipation of what you just said. And I apologize for interrupting, but please continue. I think you're right to focus on the stockpiling, but I don't think China's stockpiled anywhere near enough of what you'd need uh, to keep uh, Taiwanese facilities operative. And it's not just the equipment and materials, you also need the people. Uh, because the staff inside of TSMC's facilities have really unique knowledge that China can't simply transplant. And so I think we can safely assume that if fighting starts, the industry shuts down and doesn't turn back on again. I think the, the scenario I worry about is what if there's a blockade, sort of like the Cuban Missile Crisis, but in reverse. China stops ships from going into Taiwan and threatens to keep stopping ships unless Taiwan gives in. What would the US do? Would we send in the Navy to break the blockade? Maybe, but I'm not so sure about that. What would it mean, let's just say, if that's like the least violent sort of way in which they basically start to, for all intents and purposes, shots across? the bow a, a little bit, or at least indicate what their intentions are. At that point, when you think about the precedent that was set by U.S. multinationals when the Russians rolled into Ukraine in the beginning of 2022, Tim Cook, Elon Musk, they have to make some really hard decisions. Tim Cook set this course two decades ago, and he's the architect, right? Uh, if you think about it from like a, a supply chain and logistics standpoint, for them to move, and, and I know that they're moving manufacturing facilities um, in India and, and Vietnam, and, and we'll see stuff closer to home, but that is all massively inflationary, right? If you think about it, and the sort of the cost of an iPhone goes from $1,000 possibly to $1,700, $1,800 or something like that. So if you just think about the disruption to some of the biggest manufacturers or, or consumer products companies around the globe, you are reversing 50 years of this sort of, you could call it unholy alliance that we've had with this cheap labor. So talk to us a little bit about that, because do you think a lot of these US multinationals are threading a needle right here? Year, but it really feels like what we've experienced over the last three years from the pandemic and then all of these kind of geopolitical tensions that have been bubbling up, it seems like that we better start moving our feet a little bit or we're going to be left flat footed. I think you're right that all of the companies you mentioned are completely unprepared for a rapid shift. Uh, what they're hoping for is a shift that takes place over five years or a decade in which they can slowly build up production capacity outside of China and be in a better position when that day comes. And so if you look at Apple, they've been moving more rapidly than almost anyone expected, more rapidly than I think even they expected they'd be doing to open up new assembly lines in Vietnam and India. And, and they're actually the laggard. If you look at other companies, PC producers like Dell or HP have been moving more rapidly to shift assembly out of China precisely uh, for this reason. If you look at server assembly, that's even shifted more rapidly than PC. So the entire electronics industry has woken up and is trying to reposition itself precisely to take account of these risks. The point I would make here about that is when you think about the reliance on access to their consumers by a Tesla, for instance, 50% of their new cars are being rolled out from Shanghai, the gigafactory there, and they are number four or three or four in market share. In this latest quarter that was just reported in Q3, as far as deliveries, BYD almost got within 3,000 cars. So when you think about our reliance on them, I'm, I'm like, I'm really kind of worried. And then the other point, I would say, is that she and, and the regime, if they see 
these multinationals, these U.S. companies moving manufacturing away, don't they rely less on us? And, and therefore, it has the potential to really dial up, or at least if you think about how tense our situation right now is, I know there's a lot of optimism about the potential for a Biden-Xi sort of summit in the not-so-distant future. But if they are going to rely less on our companies using them for manufacturing, then they're going to further close access to their consumers. And it really just heightens the chances of them doing something or making a move on Taiwan. Yeah. And I think that's already happening. If you look at smartphones, for example, who's going to lose market share thanks to Huawei's new smartphone launch? Apple will. Who's losing out from BYD's rapid growth in China? Tesla is really challenged. And I think that's slowly actually having an impact on the way that US multinationals are thinking about the Chinese market. Because when it was a source of unending growth, they would do anything to keep access to it. But now many are beginning to realize that actually there are Chinese competitors that are going to steal their market share. And in that context, they're going to fight less hard to keep access to it and be more open to shifting their production to other geographies. I'm pretty certain that everybody in the Pentagon has read your book. If they didn't, they should. And if you think about the budget of the Pentagon, you think about the United States military, biggest and most well-funded military in the history of mankind. My sense is they've done things to sort of mitigate the risk that they face because of their reliance on chips. But maybe I'm off base here. So walk us through that in terms of just that lens, the U.S. military. What are we looking at here? Here's a challenge the U.S. military faces. They are a major buyer of high-end chips, but they're small volumes compared to Apple or to Qualcomm or to AMD. The U.S. military basically invented the first semiconductors, but today only 2% of chips by volume go into the defense sector. And so Tim Cook has vastly more influence over the semiconductor supply chain than does Joe Biden. And that's the challenge the military faces, is that they've got to buy leading edge chips, the most advanced chips wherever they're made. And for the U.S. military today, that means Taiwan is a source of many advanced semiconductors. They don't like that fact, but there's no alternative. And the reason there's no alternative is because today a cutting edge ship plant costs twice as much as an aircraft carrier. So let's let's focus on the military here for, for a second. So when you think about the advanced chip bands, it, it really, and, and you mentioned Dell before, right? A lot of these consumer electronics companies are also, they sell into the government, right? So Dell, one of their biggest customers is probably the US government. And, and so when you think about the advanced chips that go into servers or go into military drones, this is really what this is all about right now, right? And so when you talk about how far the U.S. is, we're not that far, right, from the Chinese. If they really want to double down here and, and make some advances, like Guy just alluded to that, you said that Tim Cook is a lot more important in this equation right now because of, let's just say, the amount of chips that they're buying and the level of it. But does the military and our access to the manufacturing in Taiwan Semi, this is actually ultimately the more important point, isn't it? And and so talk to us a little bit about how this is likely to play out here, because a lot of our companies can verticalize things, but our government, they're still going to be reliant on a lot of the capabilities over there. Yeah, that, that's right. And, and the U.S. military and all militaries around the world are trying to figure out how they can deploy AI and autonomous systems in their operations. And, and to do that, they need access to the exact same chips as everyone else, NVIDIA GPUs first and foremost. And NVIDIA's most advanced GPUs are made at TSMC. Right now, they can't be made anywhere else. And so that has meant that if you want to train a drone to fly autonomously, just like you want to train a car to drive autonomously, you are very likely to use NVIDIA's chips. And so long as TSMC remains at the cutting edge of chip manufacturing, GPU manufacturers are going to want to use their capabilities, which means that anyone who wants access to GPUs will be relying on chips made in Taiwan. I think we're fortunate that the answer to this question is they didn't pursue it. But 
if the Soviet Union, the then Soviet Union, had pursued advanced chips the way they pursued other things, would there still be a Soviet Union? I know you can't do the counterfactual, but you think about it, they were so behind the curve in that vertical that it makes you wonder what would have happened if they weren't. What they really got wrong was that they didn't have a consumer market to help drive progress forward. They only had a military market. The military market was small, whereas the U.S. was producing 10 and eventually almost 100 times as many chips for computers and then eventually for PCs and then more recently for smartphones. And that's what's been driving progress. It's Apple every year that buys the most advanced chips that TSMC can produce. And so unless you got the consumer market, you can't compete. Challenge is that China has a consumer market, not as big as the rest of the world, but still pretty big, 20% of global GDP. And so China's got a real chance to compete. Chris, when you talk about that consumer market in China, like in, in Guy, I think referenced this a little bit where the Chinese put a, a ban on iPhones for government workers and they have the potential to really influence their consumers. And there's Apple doesn't have number one smartphone market share in China. The, the, they are very loyal to local brands. Yes, Apple and Tesla are aspirational, but like they could really do a number on consumer sentiment towards our U.S. brands, especially if all of a sudden you start seeing hundreds of thousands of workers not making those products the way they had been in the years prior. Talk to us a little bit about that, because that's a huge difference between the example that you just talked about with Russia. It was also a very easy reason why U.S. multinationals could pull out of Russia when Russia invaded Ukraine. They were getting one or two percent of their sales in Russia, and maybe that was on the high end. I think you're right about Chinese brands growing in importance, but if you open up a Lenovo PC or a Xiaomi phone, what you'll find inside is lots of chips imported from abroad, often designed in the US, manufactured in Taiwan or Korea. And so today, most of the key chips and almost all Chinese smartphones, the new Huawei phone is an exception, uh, and basically all computers are designed and manufactured abroad. That might be beginning to change. The new Huawei phone is an exception and Huawei is going to try to produce as many units of this phone as it can. And to the extent that China can produce chips that are as good or close enough to what Taiwan or Korea can produce, it's going to substitute out these imported components, use its own, and then it'll be in a position to completely cut out foreign firms from its market. Co-founder of Fairchild Semi, Gordon Moore, and I think also Intel, there's an observation, a law based on his name, Moore's Law. And my question is, and you can describe it a lot better than I, but does it still hold true in 2023 the same way it did 20, 30 years ago? Gordon Moore coined the, the concept of Moore's Law in 1965, and he had two definitions for what it meant. First was that the number of transistors per chip, which meant that computing power produced by each chip would double every couple of years. And that's basically remained in place. Once every two years, we get chips that are twice as capable. The second criteria he had was that the average cost per transistor would fall every year, which is why you can buy a phone for $1,000 that has as much computing capability as the biggest supercomputer in the world 50 years ago. That has unfortunately stopped. Around 2015, the cost of computing has stopped declining, and by some metrics, it's even actually increased slightly, which is a real problem because we're demanding more compute now, especially for AI, than ever before. And there are concerns that even our ability to shrink transistors and therefore to cram more of them on chips is going to come to a halt at 
some point over the next decade. We've got at least half a decade of shrinking to go beyond that. It's not certain how much longer it can continue. Back to the national security implications. So if the H-100 is the only chip in town, literally, or, or on the globe that can do the training of these models, whether they're for like consumer sort of applications or military applications and the like, and, and you say to yourself, for NVIDIA to get around those bans that were put in place, and they have made some, like, how does the national, like the, the national instance play into this? Jensen Wang is a Taiwanese, right, by birth. And when you think about, there was a headline in Bloomberg just this week, key Taiwan tech firms helping Huawei with China chip plants. You know what I mean? I, I wonder, like, when you think about capitalism gets in the way of nationalism in, in some instances. And I just wonder if there's going to be more regulation around this, if it actually is shown. You've seen the numbers. You've seen what happened to NVIDIA's orders. Like, I suspect there was a lot of double and triple ordering, as many others have, in front of these bans going into place. Or there's a lot of stuff being traded on the gray market. Or there's a whole host of these workarounds coming into place. But if the Taiwanese are helping the Chinese build the plant so Huawei can make further advancement in their chips and in their manufacturing of high-end smartphones and the like, and Jensen Wang, who's made hundreds of billions of dollars over the last year from himself. I, I think he's become one of the richest men in the world because of the you know uptake of these devices. If they're all willing to play in these gray areas, I wonder... Is there a scenario where we don't actually have to have some huge geopolitical dust up because of the chokehold that the Taiwanese have on there? It just seems like maybe there's an opportunity for some sort of middle ground. I, I think you're right that chip companies have pushed their exports all the way to the limit of the law. But I think U.S. government officials, when they write the laws, they understand that if they set a threshold, companies will go all the way up to that threshold. That's to be expected. And they want U.S. firms selling into the Chinese market below that threshold. It's in our interest to sell as many chips as possible that we don't consider a security risk. That means that China is spending money funding our, our R&D processes. And so the question is just, where do you set that threshold? And that's been the debate in recent years. Threshold has been brought down as of last year. So H100s can't be sold into China. Some news reports are saying it might be brought down even further to further limit chips being sold into China. But I think the right way to think about what the US is trying to do is not to say it's going to be impossible to sell chips into China, but rather to say only at the high end uh, of AI training chips, are we going to impose these restrictions? Otherwise, the U.S. government still wants PC chips, smartphone chips, auto chips to be sold into China because that's China spending money buying our products. All right. So let's do the report card thing. October 7th is the one year anniversary of the sanctions against the Chinese, the Biden administration. A lot of people say that has not worked. So what, what is your sense? What's your grade? And, and what are some of your thoughts on those sanctions? So if you look at those restrictions, there were two big prongs. One was to restrict AI chips going to China. The second was to restrict chip making tools from being sold from US firms going into China. On the AI chip restriction, I think it's clearly had an impact in shifting volumes that would have been sold to China to be sold to the US and instead have Chinese firms buy the lower threshold chip that NVIDIA has produced. That that That's clearly worked. On, on the chip machine tools, that's where there's more uncertainty. We don't exactly know what types of tools that were used to produce this new Huawei smartphone chip, but there's been a lot of suggestions from media reports that in fact, Huawei might have been able to access some of the tools that ought to have been restricted. And so I think we should expect that Washington's going to ratchet up the restrictions further and try to close some of the loopholes that Huawei and its partners may have been accessing. 
All right, Chris, you're not a political scientist, but you're definitely a, a pretty brilliant historian and you've wrote, written a really important book here. And it's fascinated, not just technologists, but people in politics, people in markets and the like here. If you had to make a guess in 2024, would you think that there would be some sort of move on Taiwan, whether it starts with an economic blockade, maybe it's a, a military blockade, it could be lobbing some bombs at some manufacturing facilities alike. Based on all of your reporting and your sense of history. And it seems like you're now very close to the semiconductor industry, at least from some of the things that I think are most important to some of the changing dynamics. Just curious, do you think that like folks like Guy and me who are sitting there and trying to game this stuff out in the markets, do you think there's a strong likelihood that we do see some sort of provocation in 2024? Look, I don't think there's a reason that 2024 is the year you should be worried about as opposed to 2025 or 2026 or 2027. The challenge is that even if it's only a 5% chance a year or a 10% chance of year for the next couple of years, the magnitude is so huge that you've got to take it seriously. 0.05 times a multiple trillion dollar cost is a very big number. And that's the issue is that no one can tell you for certain when it will happen, if it will happen. But the scale of the impact is so large, you've got to take it seriously. Listen, Chris, your book is fascinating. We wanted to go out of our way and make sure that some of our very loyal listeners get to read it. And we want to offer the first 100 to go to the podcast store. We're going to put this uh, interview in the OK Computer podcast feed. If you go and you follow that feed and leave a review for the podcast and screenshot it, send it to contact at riskreversal.com. You guys know the drill. Send it to Amanda and we're going to send you a free copy of Chris's book, Chip War, The Fight for the World's Most Critical Technology. So we hope you guys enjoy that. Chris, thanks a lot for being on the pod. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thanks again to our presenting sponsors, CME Group, iConnections, FactSet, and SoFi. If you like what you heard, make sure you hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show, and we also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com. Derivatives are not suitable for all investors and involve the risk of losing more than the amount originally deposited and any profit you might have made. This communication is not a recommendation or offer to buy, sell, or retain any specific investment or service.